Hey, good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome back to Sanctus. So glad that you're joining us. Happy New Year almost, and Merry Christmas. I know we're all at home today, so hopefully you're sitting on a couch with a hot chocolate. Maybe you're wearing those Christmas pajamas you got a few days ago or yesterday. Now, I know Christmas Day has passed and the presents are open, and I'm sure some of you have already put down your Christmas tree. I don't know if I can forgive you for that, but that's okay. But I just want to say that the Christmas season is much longer than just a week or a month. And as we're going to discover, darkness and light are still at the center of our story. Now, if you read the whole Christmas story, the biblical account, it's a story of kings. Not one, not two, not three, but four, actually five kings. There's Herod, the king of the Jews. There's Caesar Augustus, the king of the known world. There's Satan, the unseen king of the world. There's the Magi, the kings of the east. And then there's Jesus, king over all. The extended Christmas story also has three journeys. You've got Nazareth to Bethlehem, and then you've got, uh, you've got uh, far, the far east to Bethlehem, and then you've got Bethlehem to Egypt. It's a story of symbols, manger, star, gifts. Today, though, I want to take some time, and you might know this really well. Some of you might sort of know this. Some of this might be new, but I want everyone to lean in, real attention, being open to God's word today, whether it's familiar or not. I want to focus on the Magi. Uh, the famed kings of the East, maybe you know them as the wise men. Now, in the Christmas calendar, uh, uh, what we do is we celebrate this after Advent uh, during the season of Epiphany. The manger scenes are put away and this new season begins. Now, Epiphany is key. It means new insight or a revelation or a new revelation or appearing or the unexpected, shocking, and out of the blue shows up. In the New Testament, Epiphany is connected to Jesus' first coming, shocking, in the manger. It's connected to what we're learning about right now in the book of Revelation, Jesus' second coming, where he'll split the skies, judge humanity, epiphany, but it's also used for these kings too. Now, the season of epiphany in the Western church is actually used and talked about and involves the whole church from January 2nd to January 8th. It's to, the goal is to focus all of the Christian church on the star and the coming of the Magi to meet the toddler Jesus, not the baby Jesus. This is how it reads in Matthew 2.1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came uh, to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star, star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now Matthew is already contrasting the true coming king from the ones that think they are the true kings. If you read Luke and Matthew, we've been moved already Caesar to Herod to Jesus. Now we're moved to another group of kings, traditionally called the three kings. And their gifts, of course, will reveal the true king. Now, it took them 900 miles, by the way, to get to Jesus. This could be up to a two-year journey. This is not a small thing. And remember what they said. They said, we saw his star. Where's the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Now, sitting here in 2021, many of us might miss the scandal of this. Some of you know this, but some of you don't. We've been taught by story or tradition or pageant or history or movies or bad sermons that these kings of the East, of course, were there with the angels and with the shepherds. And of course, they weren't. They came years later. Jesus is a toddler. Many people say there were three kings because there were three gifts. There was probably many more than them. The scandal, though, is not the wrong manger scene you see in front of churches or in a Christmas card or even in my house right now. The scandal, the disgrace, the shame, the outrage, the indignity is this, that non-Jewish, religiously involved pagans are being invited by God to meet him. And at the time that God invites them 
to come and meet him. <coughs> They're involved in banned spiritual practices like astrology, which rightly so the Bible calls idolatry and the invocation of supernatural evil. But this, of course, sits so right with our God because God is drawing close to people who are seeking and honest and searching, even if they're doing it wrong. It doesn't say what they're doing is okay, but he still wants to meet them. So I do this like every other year at Christmas. Let me do it again. Bear with me if you know it. Who are the kings of the East? Who are these wise men, these magi? Well, magi in English just means magician, by the way. Not trickster, magician. They were found in the Middle East, in countries which we today call like Iraq, Iran, and probably that whole Arabian Peninsula. Now, they would have been totally exposed to Jewish faith and understanding because after the second great exodus, lots of Jews didn't come back and they formed huge communities. There were great learning centers and Jewish scholars would interact with non-Jewish scholars. But actually, one author years ago when I read him summarized them the best like this. Magi were, first of all, to be sure, wise men. Scholars of the stars in Persia and the land of two rivers. At the root of the ancient state of the stars was the conviction that the microcosm of humanity is in a magnetic, symbiotic relationship with the macrocosm of the stars. Astronomy is the study of the law or movement of the stars, and astrology is the study of the message of the stars' movements for earthly life. Now, these two disciplines, which are now rightly separated, used to be combined in the same person in the ancient world. And because of their skill in deciphering the message and the movements of the stars, magi were considered wise men. Now, this again brings into focus the very scandal of the Christmas story and how light breaks into darkness. Not only were they non-Jews, which, by the way, the average Orthodox Jew would consider a non-Jew totally lost and, and unspiritual, but actually the Old and New Testament rightly forbid astrology because it's occultic. It's engaging in supernatural acts and information not empowered by God. And actually, long before these kings came and before Jesus was born, one great Jewish rabbi sort of summarizes the Jewish worldview. He who learns from a magi is worthy of death. Now, Matthew is writing his gospel as a Jew to convince other Jewish communities that Jesus was not just some a whacked out prophet or a really good man. No, no, he's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Now, you gotta sit back and go, what in the world is Matthew thinking? What a mistake, what a foot in that mouth moment. Like, what a religious, social blunder. Matthew, just shut up. Don't talk about this part of the story. And he says, of course I'm gonna talk about this. Of course these unexpected people are welcome and included to celebrate the birth of our Messiah. Why? Because Matthew says, you know who I used to be, right? I was a tax collector. I worked with the Roman occupational government. I actually had been kicked out of the synagogue and I was a bureaucratic thief. Let me put it, it's a little old now, but it still will help. This would be like when uh, the Nazis took over Europe. This would be like someone in Paris working for the Nazis. It says in Matthew 9, 9, Jesus went out from there and he saw a man named Levi, his other name, Matthew. He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came <clears throat> and ate with him and his disciples. Well, the religious leaders freaked out, of course. And then Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was going to bring all sorts of people, hated tax collectors, occultic wise men, prostitutes, Jews, Greeks, Samaritans, Romans, soldiers, terrorists, ostracized lepers, 
great religious thinkers, all would be welcomed back to home in his family as long as they embraced him, his death and resurrection. So what's amazing is the first sign of the church is already now appearing with the star. And scandal is at the heart of Matthew's account, and that's just the way God wanted it. Darkness being overcome by light. Now, let me repeat this. Where is the one who's been born? King of the Jews. We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. Now, King of the Jews, such an important title. This is connected to the Old Testament. Jesus holds the throne of David. He's the better Solomon. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem as king. And the star is beginning to break that thick, choking darkness with light. And yet, Jesus, the light of the world, and that star are going to cast a shadow. And it's going to be a cross. Why? Because that title, King of the Jews, is one of the main reasons why Jesus is executed. I mean, it's what's used at his trial. That's what's used by Roman soldiers as they mocked him, whipped him, beat him, put a crown of thorn on his head, and draped him in a purple robe. And actually, that's what's written above his head in three languages. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, these wise men say, hey, listen, we saw a star. Now, this not only physically happened, but it was predicted so long ago. See, this part of the Christmas story mirrors one from the Old Testament. I love, I found this again years ago from an Old Testament scholar. Let me bring it home. When Moses was leading Israel through the desert towards the promised land, he encountered another, encountered another wicked king who, like Pharaoh of Egypt, tried to destroy Moses and God's people. His name was Balak. He was the king of Moab. And to destroy the Jews, he summoned from the east a famous seer named Balaam, who used his magical arts against Moses and Israel. Balaam was a non-Israelite, occultic visionary, a practicer of enchantment, and in Jesus' day would have been called a magi. <laughs> he and two servants came, but instead of cursing Moses and Israel, he had a favorable vision of them. Let me just read part of that to you in Numbers 24, 14. Now, I'm going back to my people, but come and let me warn you of what these Jewish people will do to your people in the days to come. And then he uttered this oracle, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Balaam comes from the east, just like the Magi. He uses supernatural arts, just like the Magi. He predicts a star that symbolizes the coming of one that will rule forever. See, all of this was predicted. And that's why we shouldn't be shocked that in the last book of the Bible, when Jesus is speaking, he says, I am the root and offspring of David, and I am the bright and morning star. Well, these magi traveled and searched, and they wanted to worship this toddler. And what's interesting is worship in most contexts means homage, but in Matthew, it's used to proclaim Jesus as God. Again, just catch this. Mary and Joseph are good Orthodox Jews. They know that only God is to be worshipped, and they, first of all, should have stopped any non-Jew from walking their home because this is what was taught. If you invited a non-Jew into your home, it spiritually contaminated you before God. Non-Jews were not welcome in Jewish homes. So that was already taboo, number one. Number two, it would be blasphemy, wickedness, to allow some people to bow down and worship your two-year-old as God. Unless, of course, he's more than meets the eye. Well, before we get there, it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard what the wise men said, he was disturbed, all of Jerusalem with him. 
He called together all the people's chief priests and the teacher of the law and asked, where is the Messiah, the Christ, to be born? Well, in Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Well, Herod called the Magi secretly, <laughs> found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Now you go, and you make careful search for this child, and as soon as you find him, you report that to me, because I want to go and I want to worship him too. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I've shared this in years before. Herod is ruthless, he's cunning, he's murdered all sorts of his family and relatives that he views as rivals, and so he uses these foreigners. They don't know the gravity of the situation, they don't know his character. He doesn't want to give any PR to another king, so he lies like a snake preparing to kill and says, oh, I want to know where he is. I want to worship him. Inside he's saying, I'm going to kill this kid. Well, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that had seen in the east went ahead of them and stopped over the place the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Coming to the house, they saw the child was his mother Mary. They bowed down and they worshipped him. I want you just to catch this today. These powerful, wealthy, mega-educated men bowed and worshipped before a toddler. This is the greatest act before any of the gifts. Because it symbolizes the idea that Jesus is the true light and is greater than all other lights. And Jesus' kingship is stronger than any other kingship. Well, then here's the famous moment many of you know about. Then they opened the treasures and presented this toddler, Jesus, with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Gold is always connected to giving uh, a gift worthy of a king. So Jesus is the true king. That's what this is talking about. Not just of the Jews. He's king. He's sovereign. The ruler of the universe. Like we've been learning in Revelation. He's the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. And at the end of the time. At the end of time. Every human being is going to face Jesus alone. Incense is interesting. That's given. This was used to worship God in the temple. It symbolizes the prayers of God. And now they're saying God is in flesh here, and myrrh was used to embalm the dead, and this is a symbol of Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Can you imagine a two-year-old playing with all this? Mary's like, don't touch the incense. Don't break the myrrh. Like, don't do that. I mean, that's what's going on, and yet it's so much more here. Light is overcoming darkness. These kings and these acts bring the whole story together. By the way, this was predicted 700 years before it took place. Prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 61. Rise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. A thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Well, the next verse begins to show the dark side of this again. It says in verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. By the way, let me just preach this for a moment. If you truly encounter Jesus, you'll never go back to where you came from the same way. And remember, the Magi are the least likely candidates for God's love. And notice... Everything changes. Where's the place where it all changed? When these highly intelligent, very in tune religious, political men of high social status and were mega wealthy bowed at a toddler's feet. If you truly meet Jesus, you'll go another direction and your old life will not have power over you like it did. 
Well, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Darkness. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt. By the way, I don't know if you just saw the connection. This is a repeat also of the Old Testament because another Joseph, long before, he was about to be killed by his brothers and he's taken down to Egypt. What's amazing though is just like Joseph in the end saves the Jews out of Egypt through star- because of starvation, now Joseph takes Jesus and Jesus is going to come out of Egypt and save the world. Well, it says in verse 15, Joseph stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled Uh, What the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Well, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Here's the true Herod. Gave orders to kill every little boy in Bethlehem and its vicinity that were two years old or under in accordance with what he had learned from the Magi. Herod basically says, I'm not going to be overthrown. And this is not just politics, by the way. He's being inspired by supernatural wickedness. The author of death, the one that will resist God, he will do anything to stop humanity. See, to understand this really like dark, wicked moment, this act of horror, you have to go above Bethlehem and above Israel. You actually have to go above the whole known world from heaven's view. Only then does the Christmas story, this dark part of it, become clear. I love when one wrote, on earth a baby was born. The king got wind of it, a chase ensued. In heaven, the great invasion had begun, a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universal seat of evil. See, Christmas is an invasion. The Prince of Peace has now been born into the world to challenge the prince of this world. And in Revelation 12, we find the Christmas story from heaven's view. Let me just read it real quick. Revelation 12, 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet and a a crown of 12 stars were on her head. Now, where have you seen this before? Some of you who grew up in Catholic backgrounds are like, I know, that's the Virgin Mary. Because in every single Catholic church on earth, you'll see Mary and she has a crown of 12 stars above her head and there's a moon underneath her. But see, that's a mistake by our friends. See, this isn't Mary. This is Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel are represented by the 12 stars. In other words, Israel is about to birth the Messiah and something is going to try to kill the Messiah and this thing is inspiring Herod. It says in verse 2, she was pregnant, cried out in pain, she's about to give birth. And another wondrous sign appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. He swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, again, like we've been learning in Revelation, don't read this in chronological order. The red dragon is not sort of see, to be seen as the next one arriving. This is talking about this. Satan rebelled in heaven. One third of the stars, the angels, fell with him. They regroup on earth, and now they continue their rebellion on earth, and they're going to try to kill the one who will actually remove their power. Here's the graphic thing. The dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth so he might devour the child the moment it came out, the moment it was born. And Israel, this woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who's going to rule over all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. So think about the graphic nature of this. Many of you as women have actually had children. And so this woman is in the most vulnerable position as the baby's about to come out. And at the birth canal is this massive demonic dragon ready to kill. And it's standing in the place where a doctor should be or a midwife should be. 
And we know this is the Messiah. This is Jesus because he'll rule the nations. See, this is the dark side of the Christmas story. The undercurrent of hostility seen in Herod and the killing of the infants in Bethlehem points to the enormous spiritual conflict raging in the heavens. Herod was not just evil and paranoid, though he was crazy. He was also demonically driven to serve Satan's purposes. The kingdom of darkness absolutely knew it had been invaded and actually had to try to kill the invasion. Revelation 12 is heaven's view of what Matthew is recording in the Christmas account just after the wise men leave. That's why this part of the Christmas story says, a voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. See, this is actually where the Christmas story literally ends. Not songs or carols or eggnog or gifts around the tree, but wailing and death and question and pain. And yet, and yet, and yet, darkness will never thwart the purposes of God. As Isaiah had wrote generations earlier in Isaiah 9 too, the people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. In other words, darkness cannot overcome the light. Let me just uh, take this very familiar story and speak to all sorts of us. Let's be honest in this Christmas season of who Jesus really is. Jesus, his birth, his life, his teachings, his acts, his claims, his identity, his death, his physical resurrection, his ascension, always divide people. And by the way, I just want to say this Christmas, you have to decide. The light shines, signals the great uh, contrast. Think about it. The Magi, these very intelligent, wealthy people, are seekers and they turn into believers. Then there's Herod and all the religious people who had more information and they actually become unbelievers. When we come face to face with Jesus, there's no middle ground. Either he's God, the savior of the world, the only way back to the Father, or he's not. You either have to accept him or reject him. I love when one pastor said, look, possessing Bible knowledge about Jesus is never enough. One must act upon knowledge they have in order to be saved. The non-Jewish magi didn't have as much knowledge about Jesus as the religious clergy in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, they acted on the knowledge they had. They found the Christ child and they worshipped him. They found salvation, but many in Jerusalem did not or would not. Who do you say Jesus is this Christmas season? Really? Because your eternity is connected to it. Many of you are Christians listening uh, listening, uh, listening to me today. But because of pain or scandal or unmet expectations or unrealistic expectations, you're trying desperately to find Jesus. Many of you are actually trying to stay in the faith and see truth. I just want to say this Christmas, I want to say to you directly, you're still part of the church. Your questions are welcome. Your deconstruction is not too much for God or us. He wants a relationship with everyone. He is totally fine with you asking tough questions, both you who are seekers and you who are struggling in the faith. But I preached this a few years ago. I want to do this one more time, but please don't get stuck on the journey. It's so interesting in our culture how people idolize the journey and they say the journey is more important than the destination. But in this case, that's not true. The destination is the most important thing. And you actually need to get to the person. Also, don't get stuck with the star. <laughs> Nature and science and philosophy and supernatural ideas and experiences and, and, and religiosity, there's actually a lot of good in all of those things. But the star and the star's presence and light is never enough. 
all of this reality is pointing to the one who is the author of the star, the author and artist of reality, the architect of reality. God himself is found fully through Jesus. So number one, don't just idolize the journey and stop and think you've accomplished what you need to. And don't get stuck just with all the experiential or biological stuff. And by the way, don't just get stuck with fact-finding. Oh, oh, please do your homework. History, research, scientific study, personal interviews. Bring your questions. Do your homework. But at the end of the day, this is still about encountering the living person. you got to find him. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In other words, whether you're a seeker or a skeptic or actually you're a Christian who's working through deconstruction or you're just trying to connect, you've got to move on their journey from the star to the facts to encounter in faith. You've actually got to encounter him for the first time, encounter him all over again, and then don't go back the route you came from. By the way, if you've never done that or you need to recommit or reconnect, I'll lead you in a prayer in a moment. I just want to say to all of us who are not deconstructing or we're doing okay in our faith or or we've been Christians for a while, I just want to remind you, this is what I end this year with. (laughs) The dragon didn't win and Herod didn't win. And I know we're in a lot of darkness now. I just want to remind you, lighten it. Light will always overcome. Our God is solely in control. You do not need to fear. And if you want to go a different route, you want to reconnect, I just want you to pray this. Dear God, thank you for sending your son Jesus so I could get to know you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being with me all of my life, maybe even when I didn't know it. And I realize right now I need a savior to set me free from sin, myself, habits, hurts, hangups that mess up my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sin. I want to repent and I actually want to live in a way you created me to live. So be the Lord of my life. Save me by your grace. Save me from my sins. Save me for your purposes. Drive out the darkness. Fill me with light. I I choose, just like those wise men, with all of what I've got to bow down in front of you. I love you. I trust you. I want to become what you've made me to be. I want to go home a different way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have an incredible Christmas season. And I encourage you that Jesus is the light of the world and darkness does not overcome. 